my name is Stephanie. I'm the lead pastor here, and I just want to extend a special welcome to anyone who's visiting here or anyone who's joining us online for one of the first few times, or maybe it's been a little while for you. I know it's a big deal to come into a new community, and we're just so grateful that you're here. Happy second Sunday of Advent. I love Advent. Any other people who love Advent out there? Okay, good. I just, out of curiosity, how many of you celebrated Advent in your, if you, if you grew up going to church, how many of you celebrated Advent in your communities? So that's like a little, little bit more than half, maybe. Um, not all communities celebrate it in this church calendar idea, um, but the idea is that we're, we're anticipating, we're waiting for, watching for the arrival of, of Jesus and, the, and looking for, anticipating Christmas. In my church growing up, there was a really meaningful way in which they celebrated Advent with the candles. And I want to say now as an adult, I've grown to have quite a sophisticated experience when it comes to Advent. But as a child... I just saw those candles and I thought, how many candles do we have to get through until we get to Christmas, okay? Like, which one comes next? We got purple, the pink one, the pink one, we're almost there. Like, this is, this is, this is where little Steph was at, if I'm being honest. Because, of course, like not all children, but many children in America, the, the anticipation is for that special gift that you really want for Christmas. And I got to go to Christmas Eve with my cousins and we got special candy. And, like, this is what Advent was about for me. Now, I'm looking back at that time and I'm thinking that, you know, the Lord knew that we needed to be prepared to grow up as adults. Some of you kids here, like, listen, you're being prepared to wait for the things that adults then have to wait for in adulthood, like at the DMV, you know, or on the phone when they're playing that music over and over and you just have to put the phone over there on speakerphone and turn it down because they're just looping that thing. You can wait for hours on the phone, right? Or, uh, you know, I think about, I drive by Northeast Middle School and there's just like this line of cars picking up their kids or like waiting at the bus stop. My goodness, does adulthood require some waiting? Um, I, I also noticed that at around 8.30 or 9 p.m. at the, the, the Taco Bell by my house, there is a long line. And I have not personally been in that line. I'm not going to say if anyone that lives with me has been, but I am saying that people are waiting for things as adults. And and it's funny to think about those kinds of things that we inevitably need to wait for. But of course, uh, as we grow into adulthood, and even maybe as kids, there's waiting that happens that's a little bit more tenuous, isn't there? Uh, Like waiting for test results from a a doctor. Like the the waiting that so many of us have just hoping to be in the the next life stage that we really just desire to be in, but it's not happening. Uh, People just in this place of waiting for healing, waiting for things that oftentimes feel like it's just going to be an absolute miracle if this thing happens. And so this Advent, we're celebrating the idea that hope is on the horizon, that that's what Advent is all about, this idea of hope. And of course, hope is typically a positive concept, right? And I I do believe that it's a positive concept. But what is hope? Hope is active waiting. Hope is active waiting, and this is something I often say because I believe it so deeply. Hope is like longing. In fact, I would say longing is what hope feels like on a tough day. Longing for something more. And I believe that this is true. God created us as people desired to hope, desired for longing, designed for longing. That that we are people who will have hope and have longing because we are longing for something more than what we're experiencing now. We're We're wired to desire and hope and long for the kingdom of God to come. And the reality is, is that if we stop longing, then we stop hoping. They kind of go together. And so some days I know that hope feels encouraging. It feels more like anticipation. But the truth is that a lot of us here would say sometimes hope feels like long-suffering longing. 
And wherever you're at with that today, I want you to know that together in this season, that's what we're practicing. Being people of longing, being Advent people who are looking to what Jesus is doing around us, but also, just like the first Christmas, the hope is on the horizon that Jesus is with us now, but will come again. So as Pastor Donna said last week, Advent means arrival. And over church history, the tradition of Advent celebrated has really been the idea of these three Advents, okay? The three Advents. Uh, here's, here's what I mean by that. The arrival of Jesus as a little baby as we celebrate in Christmas. The arrival of Jesus' spirit that happens every day if we're looking around us. And then the third Advent, the arrival of Jesus when he comes again to usher in the fullness of the kingdom of God. These are the three Advents, and we are Advent people. We are Advent people who are anticipating and longing for, filled with hope, but also with longing, looking forward to what God is doing now, uh, looking back at the arrival of Jesus, looking for Jesus to arrive in our midst every day, and looking forward to when Jesus will arrive yet again. But as you can see, we're kind of caught in the middle of the Advents right now. I often call this the messy middle, which is where we find ourselves in God's story, in the messy middle and when we are in the messy middle, I think what we can notice is how easy it is for us to misplace our hope. To misplace our hope in things that are other than God. We misplace our hope in other people, in other leaders, in things, in systems, in money. Of course, the list could go on. And all of these realities will inevitably disappoint us, don't they? It's not wrong to hope for good things in our life, but when we misplace our deepest hope for the future, it can have pretty discouraging consequences for us. Now, the temptation to misplace our hope, it's not a new thing for humanity. It's not a new thing for God's people. When we look back at the story of God, we see God's people so often misplacing their hope and placing it in anything other than Yahweh God and anything other than Jesus. And so as we are looking at this story, we know we're not alone in misplacing our hope sometime. So as we are in Advent this season, we are looking at the book of Isaiah, a prophetic book that, that foretells the coming Messiah, who we now know, looking back, is Jesus. Isaiah wrote these prophecies 650, 700 years before Jesus was born. And, and the, the people at that time, just like many other points in the story, were putting their hope in pretty much anything except for Yahweh God. And they specifically had misplaced their hope during this time in the kings that had become the kings of the tribes of Israel and Judah. Now, from the beginning, God had desired to be the only leader that the people needed, but the, the people wanted a human king. They wanted to be like the other nations, and they wanted to have the, a, a king, but God wanted to be their one true leader, but God gave them this opportunity to have these kings just like all the other nations. But here's the thing. These kings were not good leaders, all right? I mean, some of them were better than others. Some of them weren't that bad. But if you ever go and read in First and Second Kings, if you ever kind of page through that or read through it, uh, it sounds kind of like a broken record. Gen Z, a broken record is when like a record player, they used to play music on it and it would get caught and it would repeat itself over and over. Look it up, Google it, it's probably on YouTube. Anyway, it would sound like a broken record and, and it would be over and over. Okay, there's this new king and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. New king, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then there was another king and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then there was another king and he seemed not that bad. Oh, nope, later he did evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, this is really how most of these kings go. And so Isaiah's prophecy is about a leader being the Messiah who's going to be so different. When you read through First and Second Kings, Scripture describes these kings as selfish, as making decisions that were about their own power and their own gain. 
making decisions out of fear, worshiping these idols of all different kinds. One of the kings during the time Isaiah was writing sacrificed one of his children to one of these idols. Uh, They are people who didn't care about other people. They oppressed the poor among them. They didn't make decisions that were good for everybody else. They made decisions that were anything but wise. So this is the kind of leadership that we know was happening at the time that Isaiah was writing. And so then when Isaiah's prophecy is talking about this stark contrast to the kind of leader that Jesus was going to be as the Messiah. Uh, Theologian J. Alec Moitier, he's um, he's a European theologian, and here's what he talks about in Isaiah, these three portraits of the Messiah, okay, kind of splitting up in Isaiah. Isaiah talks about a lot of things, but is one of the main spaces we see foreshadowing Jesus as Messiah. So we'll put it up on the screen. We see Jesus as the righteous king in chapters 1 through 37, Jesus as servant, 38 through 55, and Jesus as the anointed conqueror, which is chapters 56 to 66. And for the next three Sundays, we're going to just look, leading up to Christmas Eve, at these three portraits of the kind of leadership that is offered through King Jesus. So we're going to start today with Jesus as king and how he's portrayed as this righteous king by Isaiah. In the first half of Isaiah, we see these descriptions of the kind of king that Jesus is going to be. And like I said, stark contrast to what they were experiencing with those human kings at that time. Anybody who would have been listening to Isaiah's words, it probably wasn't a lot of people that were reading it. They were hearing it read or hearing it spoken. Those early hearers, they would not have missed how different the description of this coming Messiah king was compared to the kings around them. It would have been like opposite. Descriptions of this Messiah Messiah king are all over Isaiah, but I want to zoom in today on Isaiah 10 and 11. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 10 and 11. I think Isaiah is one of the most poetic prophets of all the prophets. They're all a little poetic, but what I think about Isaiah's writing, it's these beautiful word pictures. And so I just want you to, to, as I read, I'm going to go verse by verse through each of this this little section, and I just want you to let your imagination just go with you. Just Maybe you even want to close your eyes and just imagine these word pictures that Isaiah is giving because they're, they're really deep and they're really profound. And so I'm going to start at the end of chapter 10, actually, verses 33 through 34. We'll have it up here on the screen for you, too. So this is how Isaiah ends this chapter. He says, See, the Lord, the, the Lord Almighty will lop off the bows with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. Okay, so we've got this, this word picture of these mighty high, powerful trees being cut down. And this is the way that that God's responding to these evil kings. No matter how high and mighty they thought they were to be, God was more powerful and God was not going to allow this tyranny to continue. So we have this image of these huge trees being toppled over and saying that's the end of these folks having any sort of power because they abused it. And, and now imagine this image, okay? Imagine this tree that's been felled, as it says, and it's been toppled over, and now there's a stump. And the stump is what's left over. And 600 years go by because after these, these trees are felled, we know what happens is the, the, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah are taken over by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And then for 600 years, they're in captivity and exile to other people. They don't have their own kings. So for 600 years, the people are waiting. 
and waiting. Because why are they waiting? Because they know that way back in, in uh, the 2 Samuel, we know that King David was told that a true king was going to come. And so far, looking back at all these kings, it was not one that had come so far, but that that king was going to come from the line of David. And so here the people are waiting for 600 years saying, where is this true king, this Messiah, this king that's going to actually be the kind of leader that we should follow? And they waited, and they waited. So picture this, this stump. It's not a, a fruitful tree. It's not a fruitful family tree like David might have been expecting. But let's look at chapter 11 as Isaiah gives this hopeful image of what this Messiah King will be like. Starting in verse 2, or starting in verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. I'm going to stop there again. I'm not going to stop every single verse, I promise. But let's just stop here for a second. Uh, look what this poet prophet is doing here with this picture. The, 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 the stump is there, and the root of Jesse, here Isaiah chooses Jesse instead of King David. Why does he do that? Jesse is David's dad, his lesser-known non-royal dad. And so what we see here in pointing out David's father is this humility. The, the distinction here, remember, Isaiah's trying to show something very distinct about Jesus' leadership. It's different. There's this humility Look at this picture of this idea of this, this little root, this little, little tiny shoot coming up from this, this big stump. It's this tender, little, little fragile, vulnerable thing. Isaiah's writing this hundreds of years before Jesus is going to come, the king, as a tender, vulnerable child, a little baby. This is a different kind of king, is what Isaiah is trying to say. A king coming in with humility, coming from the, the shoot of Jesse. And this is an important moment for us to stop and just say, this is not how our hero stories typically go, right? We all know, I know you're all watching the Marvel movies or DC, I'm not taking sides, but like you're watching these stories and the hero comes just in the nick of time, right? And the hero doesn't come in like tender and gentle and vulnerable. The hero comes in with might and power to save the day at the last minute. Why does it have to be the last minute all the time? I don't know because that's why we watch the movies. But in comes the hero, powerful, mighty, saves the day. And this description of how this king is going to bring rescue is so different than the stories that were told then and the stories that we tell now. This leadership is different. And Isaiah is emphasizing this, that from this tender shoot, from this tender shoot will come a a root that will bear fruit. It's going to bear fruit that will last. A tender little baby boy, a tender little shoot. And we see this little baby boy in the Christmas story being born to this poor family, being, having to flee with his family to save his life when he's still a toddler. Talk about a different kind of, of leadership to start off with. Jesus is showing that the leadership of the Messiah is not what they expected. But listen to the, the way that this leadership is described in verse 2 and 3. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, this, uh, this passage is actually known by many theologians as the sevenfold spirit, the, the idea of these seven attributes of the Spirit of God that are listed here. The Spirit of the Lord, I'll show you on this picture. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Uh, and in Revelation 5:4, hundreds of years later, we see this, this picture that John is writing about that he sees, and it says this, in the front 
of the throne, where king, the King Jesus is, there were seven torches with burning flames, and this is the sevenfold spirit of God. Now, we could have a whole sermon on each one of these things. We, maybe we will someday, but we're not going to do that. Don't worry. <laughs> Somebody's like, I got lunch. No, we're not going to do that. But you've got this beautiful picture that you see in Isaiah and then again in Revelation of this sevenfold spirit of God and the, the seven attributes that you see. So let's just summarize what this type of leadership is like. Listen to that description of this Messiah King. Wise, understanding, one that gives good guidance and good counsel, mighty and powerful, but not in an abusive way, knows all and, and fears the Lord. This kingly authority comes from the, the God of the universe who love, who is love. Now, this is the kind of leadership that I would want to follow. This sounds like great leadership to me. And you can see how much it contrasts the leadership the people were experiencing then. So you read these qualifications of the Messiah King, and you think, who could ever live up to this? Well, there was only one way, and we know now, in hindsight, there's only one way that there could be a leader that could actually fulfill these qualifications, and that would be if God's self were to come in the form of a human and be that leader. And that's what we see happen in the story of Jesus. There's only one way that there can be a true king, the type of king that they're longing for. They had misplaced their longing. They had misplaced their hope. But the one true king, there was still time. And he was going to come, and he, now we know, was going to be Jesus. And so I want just to point out uh, three things that are just the, the unique attributes of Jesus as king that we see here. And the first one is this. Jesus is a different kind of king of a different kind of kingdom. Isaiah just wants his hearers to know, we are talking about something you have never seen before. He is a leader like no other. Jesus is a different kind of king of a different kind of kingdom. There is no one like King Jesus that has ever been or ever will be the type of leadership that Jesus offered and still offers. There's no one like Jesus. But of course, in 2 Samuel 7, this promise came that this Messiah was going to come from David's line. And, and so it's important for us, as you're thinking about the Christmas story, think about this idea of the kingship of Jesus in the story. You see in the beginning of Matthew's version of the Christmas story, there's a genealogy, right? And I know you always read them slowly. You just love reading genealogies. We all do. And what it really is showing in that, in that specific genealogy is what some scholars would call uh, the royal genealogy, showing how Jesus comes from the line of David to show that this prophecy came true. And, and in a lot of ways, when you read through the Christmas story, I, I want you just to notice how often David is mentioned. King David, or for instance, you might hear the town of David in talking about Bethlehem. And what I want you to do when you're reading through the Christmas story this season, I want you to have this, this in your mind. Every time you hear David's name, instead of thinking about King David and some of the great things and not so great things he did, what I want you to think about is this is pointing out that Jesus is king. This is pointing out that Jesus is the king that they always wanted. Every time you hear David. So, for instance, let me read a part of Luke 1 where Gabriel is coming to, to Mary when she's finding out about the fact that she's going to carry this baby. Gabriel the angel says, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So when you're reading the story, notice how Jesus' kingship is all over the Christmas story. And yet, in this moment, when this angel is speaking to Mary, 
Jesus, King Jesus is a little fetus. And he's going to grow up to be a little boy that's a part of a family of scared teenage parents who are a part of an oppressed people group who have to flee as refugees. This is where the king, the tender roots, the vulnerable baby king, whose kingdom will never end. Do you see that interesting reality? This is a different kind of king, of a different kind of kingdom. And I think it begs this question of all of us during this Advent season. Will we put our hope in King Jesus? Will we put our hope in King Jesus? We may have misplaced our hope. It happens to all of us. But can we turn to Jesus and say, I'm going to put my hope in your leadership? Can we put our hope in King Jesus? This different type of kingdom is is described then by Isaiah. So if you start again in the middle of verse 3 there where we left off, I want to describe how the kingdom of, of Jesus is described, this new king. Now I want you just to picture this in your mind, even if you need to close your eyes. It says, uh, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Okay, now picture these animals. You might want to just close your eyes. The wolf will live with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion, the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Okay, there's a lot happening in this picture. First, we see that this kingdom is one of righteousness and justice where the faithfulness of God is like this belt. Whenever you hear belt, think this is what's holding everything together. The faithfulness of God is what's holding everything together. So I think that this beautiful picture gives us a a distinction about Jesus' leadership, the second one. Jesus' kingdom is one of righteousness and justice and what I want to call radical shalom, radical peace. Those pictures of those animals... I mean, did you, did you think about this? Okay, I'm one of those people that's going to cry more at like a dog movie than like a human movie. Just going to admit that. Some of you are like that too. I don't know what it is with us, but I listen to this story of this picture of these animals and I feel like emotional about it. You know, like it's such a beautiful idea that, that, that this wolf is with a lamb and this, this calf and this lion and it's being led by a little child. You know, I'm super freaked out about the kid putting his hand in the viper's nest though. Like I'm not here for snakes but my understanding of the text is that was supposed to be encouraging. (laughs) This is hyperbolic pictures, right? This is Isaiah trying to say, I can't even describe how radical this peace truly is. This kingdom that, that, that Jesus leads is so full of this shalom or perfect peace that, that I can't even describe it without using these hyperbolic pictures of these animals. Jesus' kingdom is one of justice, righteousness, and radical shalom, which begs this question for all of us. Will we join in? Will we join in the right-making? Justice, righteousness are connected concepts. They really mean to make wrong things right or the right-making work of God. And God invites us into that right-making. And we know there's so many wrong things that need to be made right. But here's the thing. It starts with us. It starts with our hearts. 
God wants to make the wrong things right in this world. But that is not just about the external reality. It's about us. I know I'll be the first one to say that there is some right-making that God needs to do in my heart. And after all the stuff that we've been through in this time, maybe this is where we need to start because I know we need some healing. We need some forgiveness. We need some courage, some renewed trust. And this is the kind of right-making that God does in our hearts that Jesus can do if we will let him in. Because that is where it needs to start, maybe, this Advent with us. And it's from there that we can be a part of the right-making in the world. This Advent season, will we join in the right-making, starting with our hearts? Here's what I want to say. I, I really believe this. Jesus will be gentle with your heart. You can trust him with it. This juxtaposition of Jesus as a tiny helpless baby, yet at that same moment the most powerful king who ever lived, who's still alive today, it's like there was no other way for God to show that this king was going to be so different, so gentle, yet so pure, yet so powerful. But this power was one of purity, not of toxicity. This power was one that was about actually not being corrupt, but being righteous, right-making. You can trust King Jesus with your heart. Jesus invites us to, to give him our hearts, and it's from that place in us that we then get to go and be a part of the right making in the world around us. Okay, I want to read one last part of this passage, which perhaps has one of the most hopeful concepts in it, and I, I hope you can see this today. In, in verse 9 and 10, you see this, this description continue. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So it's like this picture of, of the waters being like God, the knowledge of God and God's kingdom. And that's why these animals are living in this most perfect peace. Because of what God's doing. Not because of what anyone else did, but because of God's power. Imagine like the, the earth just being flooded with God's love. What a beautiful picture. And then look at this picture in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, Jesus, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. And in and, and this picture right here, we've got uh, some interesting concepts that maybe we haven't thought about before. So you see this root of Jesse. Once again, this is to, to be about Jesus, the Messiah. We now know looking back. And it says in verse 10, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all. The, the nations will rally to him, it says. So a picture of a banner is one that would conjure up ideas of like a battle, okay? And the banner was kind of like a flag, but not made of fabric, probably like a pole that had like a symbol on it. And that symbol represented your tribe, or that symbol represented your kingdom. Or maybe it was like the, the symbol of the seal of the king. And everyone rallied around that to be a part of, of that kingdom, to say we're going to be victorious and we're going to ride into whatever was going on. When you hear this idea of a banner, that's what the people would have thought when they heard the words of Isaiah. And so, of course, Jesus, King Jesus, being this banner that's lifted up, is saying that the kingdom that this king reigns over is ultimate, is supreme over all the little kingdoms, and all the nations will rally around this king. Now, of course, the idea of, of King Jesus, of, of, the, of the root of Jesse being lifted up as a banner, is a nod to the cross. You think of this, this idea of this mighty king, the last offensive move you think a king's going to make is to let people take his life. But of course, we now know, looking back, that was the most powerful thing that this king could have done and had done. 
And we see this, this reality that, that in verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. All nations will rally to him. This passage is foreshadowing that Jesus would not only be a king for the Jews, but for all nations, for the Gentiles as well. He was going to welcome and include all the nations. This wasn't just a new king for Israel or Judah or, or the Jewish community, but this was a new king whose banner all nations could rally around. And, and, and this meant that this inclusion for people who had been separated from God was already being talked about by Isaiah. But hundreds of years later when Jesus is born, we know that the, the Jews and the Gentiles and these nations were still deeply divided. But what happens in this Christmas story? We know the story. We know that after baby Jesus is born, some angels go into a field and they tell these shepherds, a king has been born. And these, these shepherds, who are some of the most lowly people, are some of the first people to come and to worship little baby King Jesus. And, and many scholars would say they represent the Jewish community. They were the first ones there. But what happens not that much later in the story? Some wise men come from the east. And they come and they want to worship this little baby king. But these are not Jewish men. These are, are Gentiles. These are people from other nations. And they represent the Gentiles coming to worship baby Jesus. The Jewish community got there first, but better late than never, here come the Gentiles and they get to be a part of this kingdom, this new kind of kingdom with this new kind of king, King Jesus. Many scholars would suggest that this was a powerful way in which Isaiah was foreshadowing what God was going to do through Jesus in bringing people together. And so that's the third distinction I want to offer. Jesus is the banner where we find unity. Jesus is a banner where unity and diversity can be found. We see that in the biblical story, and we have that hope for our lives today. Jesus is the banner where we find unity. So that brings a question, just like the other questions before. The question that we have is, will we center our lives on Jesus? Will we center our lives on Jesus? That's what this image of a banner is about. We're rallying around who Jesus is in our life. Will we put aside all the other little kingdoms that we tend to rally around and say, I am not going to rally around those in the same way that I will rally around the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Jesus, the true king. These little kingdoms, they're so tempting, right? Like countries and the little kingdoms we build up in our own lives from our own achievements and the very controlling and tempting kingdom of consumerism. I mean, the list could go on. And Jesus is saying, join my kingdom, and those little kingdoms are, are secondary, if not, not even the focus at all. Will we rally around the unifying banner of King Jesus? Because here's the thing. Okay, this is going to be like a very obvious pastor thing to say. All right, are you ready for this? Jesus is our only hope. And I'm, I'm talking about salvation, talking about living forever with God. I'm talking about forgiveness, talking about right-making, but I'm also talking about right now. The division that we're seeing amongst the Christian church is at levels I know I have never seen. I don't know what God's going to do about how many people are, are, are saying they're doing these different things in the name of Jesus. If I was Jesus, I'd be offering like a cease and desist. To the left, to the right, everyone. <laughs> Stop using my name for that. What are you doing? I don't know how God's going to work that out. I don't know what the future holds. But I do know this. Jesus is our only hope. The person of Jesus, fully human and fully God, Jesus is our only hope. The historical Jesus coming to this earth in the form of a baby born to this poor, marginalized family in an op oppressed people group, 
King Jesus is our only hope. The words and the works and the ways of Jesus and following his lead that we see in his story of his life and his death, his ministry, his resurrection, following the words and the works and the ways of Jesus. King Jesus is our only hope. Jesus with us today, leading us one day at a time by the power of his spirit. King Jesus is our only hope. And I believe that there's only one way that there can be unity and healing in the midst of the divides that we face right now. There's only one way, in my opinion, and it's this. Though we might have different political leanings, though we might have different perspectives on social or theological issues, though we might wrestle through different interpretations of parts of Scripture, though we might be people who have vastly different ethnic and cultural backgrounds, though we might be people who have had experiences that are so different than each other, I believe the only hope is that we can come together at the foot of an empty cross, proclaiming together that it's empty because King Jesus is living in our lives. And that is why Jesus is our only hope. So I leave you with these questions as we continue through Advent. Will we put our hope in King Jesus? Will we join in the right making, starting with our own hearts? And will we center our lives on Jesus? Amen.